and tell them all that they had done, even when they were only able to do these things through his power, through his work, even though he already knew all the things that they had done because they were using his power, because he is God in the flesh. He knew what was happening as they were going about with his authority to do the tasks that he had given them to do. And he knew that he was going to do even greater things. But there was no condescension. Like a loving father, he listened to his children. This is like the kid who comes home from the t-ball game and is excited about their home run. They're, they're just telling it over and over. They're pumped about the story, even though it's something so simple. Like it wasn't really a home run. It's just that no one gets anyone out ever in t-ball. Once you hit the ball, you just go all the way around. That's not that impressive. But tell that to the father of a child who's telling him that story. He's going to listen. He's going to care. He values what's being told. He hears their stories because their work that they did matters. He values it. In fact, he sees it as being worthy of rest, which is what he calls them to in the next two verses. Rest is what he calls them to. He encourages them to rest. 31 and 32, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Jesus is the one who suggested the idea of rest. They didn't have to bring it up. They didn't have to ask for it. They didn't have to sweat it of, oh, man, I'm so tired. I'm absolutely exhausted right now. If that Jesus guy would just give us a minute, just one chance to be able to possibly recharge our batteries, how are we going to bring this up to him? How are we going to possibly ask him whether we could take a breather or not? They never had to do that. He suggested it. They might have even been energized by the work that they were doing to the point that they didn't recognize their own exhaustion after going out and doing all this work. But Christ suggests it for them because Jesus is not a taskmaster. You see, other masters are. Other people you follow, other things you follow, other people who are asking you to do things, other bosses are going to lay more on you than you can bear. But Jesus calls us to rest. We've been talking the last few weeks in some sense about the cost of following Jesus, how to prepare for rejection, what that rejection might look like. But here today, we are reminded that Christ doesn't call his people to a miserable life of service. He doesn't call his people to work their fingers to the bone for his glory. Ultimately, what he calls us to is rest in him, in his work, in his power. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, he's telling in a similar place in one of the other Gospels, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Christ you follow, the God you serve, is not a taskmaster who demands your sweat He's one who asks you and calls you to rest. And in him, you can find that rest. But that rest that he's giving, that's not just an easy, cheap rest. It's not simply because it was an appropriate time for a sit-down. It wasn't because the disciples didn't have that much going on. It was already their downtime, and he said, well, this is the slow period. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. No, there was a lot for them to do. He sees that they're actually very busy. Many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. There were so many people coming and going to be served by the disciples that they couldn't even stop to eat themselves. 
they had no chance to recharge their batteries. And yet he encourages rest nonetheless. He reminds them that they're not God. That though there appears to be so much work to do, how are they ever going to do it? He says, no, take a break. They need a break. Because they are humans in his service. They are not the God of all the universe who does not need to recharge his batteries. Talking about this same concept, John Piper, one of my favorite uh, preachers and pastors, talked about sleep. And that sleep is actually a daily reminder that you need to rest. God ordained sleep. He makes his people sleep. And that is a reminder to us each and every day that we are not God. What he said whenever he said this is, sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. Once a day, you are reminded that you are not God, that you need to rest. And he gave that to you as a gift. That though you work, you do work hard. You may even have space to play hard. You also have a certain portion of your day that God has ordained and devoted to your rest as a gift to his people, as a gift to those who serve him. Jesus calls them to rest because they need it. He is caring for his disciples just as he also cares for the crowds. And he does care for the crowds out of compassion for them. Verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. You see, compassion may be the rarest of all human emotions. It's so hard to find. It's so hard to see truly. Altruistic compassion, just simple care and love for the people around you, even when it might even cost you something. It's so rare to see. True compassion and gentleness are largely absent from our world today, but Christ, in seeing a crowd of people, not like one person. One person could possibly be a little easy to have compassion on. See a mass of humanity coming toward you, wanting things from you. I bet your first thought isn't going to be compassion. Your first thought isn't going to be these poor people are like sheep without a shepherd. But that's Christ's thought. Christ sees a crowd, has compassion, and acts out of that compassion and his love for them by teaching them as he came to do. He gives them the gospel, which was what he came on this earth to tell them. But the disciples, while Christ is caring for the crowd, they don't want the job of caring for the crowd. Look at the next few verses. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. See, the disciples think the job is for someone else. They see the need. They know somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to feed these people. They've all got to eat food at some point. But they assume someone else should be the one to do this. Someone else should be the one to act on their behalf. Yeah, I know. They need to eat. So Jesus, let them go fend for themselves. Send them away. Let them go find their own food. This might be out of just laziness for the disciples. It might be just exhaustion. We just said they needed to rest. It might be just lack of preparation. Like we're going to find out later, all they had were five loaves and two fish. Whoever packed the lunch just for the disciples did a bad job. That's not enough food. It might have just been lack of preparation. 
But it may have also just been a lack of faith. That they forgot who they were talking to. Regardless of the reason, though, they want someone else to care for these people. They want someone else to do the job of feeding these people that are in front of them. But Jesus doesn't think that way. See, he thinks the job of caring for the crowds is the job of his followers. He says, no, 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 it's your job to feed these people. Verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That's their response. He says, no, 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 you give them something to eat. He asks his followers to meet the needs of others. He says, no, 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 you are your brother's keeper. This is your job. I know you need rest. I'm still not a taskmaster. But I am giving you this task. You give them something to eat. You're my followers. They came to you. Don't send them away. Give them what you've got. And then he bears with them through all of the inhibitions that they have. Because look at their sarcastic response. Uh, Jesus uh, verse 37, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of, bre- worth of bread and give it to them to eat? <laughs> they're, they're looking at him and saying, oh, okay, good idea, Jesus. How about we just go buy some food? I wish we had just thought of that. If we just remembered that you could buy food with money, we would have gone and fed all these people. Good idea. Why didn't you think of that, John? I don't know, Peter. That's their response. He says, no, 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 it's your job. You feed them. You give them something to eat. And they say, what are you talking about? We can't possibly do that. But Jesus doesn't respond sarcastically back to them. He's not put off by their sarcasm. He's not put off by their lack of faith. He understands the stakes involved. And he still asks even people who are like us to do the job of feeding the masses to do the job of having compassion on those who are like sheep without a shepherd, in spite of our poor attitudes. He's able to assign this job to them, this job to his people, then and now, because ultimately he's the one who's going to do the work of that provision. He's the one who's going to feed the people. He simply uses us as the instruments as he goes about and does that. He does the work. He's the miracle worker. And he uses what his people bring to accomplish this task. Verse 38. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Which again, not very much food. Twelve disciples, five loaves, two fish. You do the math, not enough. That's all they've got. That's all they bring him when he asks them to give, them, to give him all that they have. But he doesn't wait for them to get more equipped. He doesn't wait for them to go find more food. He uses what they brought. He uses who they are, where they are, with the resources they already have. He takes them as they are with their current gifts, their current abilities, and he uses what they bring to him to make a miracle. You see, you right now, if you are in Christ, you are sufficient for what he is calling you to do. You're not sufficient in the way the world would say that you're sufficient, just a generic message of you are enough. You are enough. Who you are is worthy. You're enough. That's not the way that I'm meaning this. I'm meaning this, that you are enough to do what he has called you to do because he is going to use exactly what he has given you to do what he has asked you to do. You're not enough on your own. But you are enough for him to use on your own. 
in your hands, you as his instrument, that's where the miracle could happen. That's how he takes his people. That's how he receives them. Because he's the one who does the work, whatever he's already done in you is sufficient for the task that he has given to you. And he works through you as you do the work. Look at the rest of these verses. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. You see, the disciples were the ones distributing the food. Jesus, though he could have, he didn't just snap his fingers and have food in front of every person. He used the labor and the willingness of his followers to facilitate this miracle. It was in their hands that the miracle actually happened. That's Notice, he doesn't pray, and then all of a sudden there are 12-plus baskets of food there. He prays, and people still just see five loaves and two fish. And he says, start passing it out. So actually, as the disciples move, as they work, as they begin to pass out the food that is there, that's where it gets multiplied. The miracle happens through the power and work of Jesus, but it happens in the hands of the disciples. They're the ones distributing the food. He doesn't make the baskets appear. He distributes it through their work. As they pass it out, the work is multiplied. And God still tends to work in this way. He doesn't just snap his fingers and accomplish his purposes, though he could. He has that power. What he does is he uses regular people like you and me who are just willing to be his instrument, just willing to be obedient, just willing to do what he has asked us to do, to take that first step, to share our faith when the opportunity arises, to volunteer in this ministry even though it might be outside of our comfort zone, to start discipling or being discipled by someone else in our church. He uses people, just like you and me, who are willing to take that first step of obedience. And in that very simple act of breaking off a piece of bread and handing it to someone else, he works miracles. All you have to do is be obedient to what he's called you to do. And your work, which you do, which is real, is used by him to do great things. He works wonders before our very eyes, even without us noticing until the task is done very very many times. The last two verses. When they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. When they finished, they had much more than they had when they started. The disciples' obedience was not for naught. It wasn't for nothing that they were doing this miracle. Your work is not inconsequential, no matter what it is, if it is eternal. Christ cares for his people by providing both for the disciples and the crowds. He cares for his people so we can trust him. That's the second reason from our text this morning that it's not so bad to be a disciple is because Christ is trustworthy. We move on to the next miracle. It's a sermon full of miracles today. The next one. We see what happens immediately after the first, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. The disciples get into trouble on the water for the second time in the book of Mark. So Christ, when he sees them in their trouble, comes to them in their trouble. 
Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. Christ comes to them in their trouble. He took his leave of them, but he was never far off from them. Just as he may take his leave of you, but he's never actually far off from you. Remember Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, God right now sees your trouble. He's with you in the midst of your trouble. He noticed the disciples making headway painfully. He saw that the wind was against them, so he came to them, just like he sees you in your trouble. When headway is made painfully, he sees. When the wind is against you, he notices. He's not standing back on the mountain watching to see how things play out. He shows up. He can be trusted, even when troubles come. Even when life feels like it is hitting you in the face, even when you're going up against a strong headwind, he was willing here in this story to break the laws of physics. He walked on water, not just for the act of walking on water, but to get to his people. He didn't want to wait until they arrived at the shore before he came to them. He walked on the water because his people were in trouble. He became a man because his people were in trouble. He died on the cross because his people were in trouble. Christ is absolutely and utterly and infinitely trustworthy because when those he loves are in trouble, he sees and he acts for their salvation from that trouble. You can trust him with your troubles because he, in his work, coming incarnate, being a man, living the perfect life that you couldn't live, dying the death that you deserve to die, and raising himself from the grave after three days. In that work, he has solved your greatest trouble. The worst thing that besets you, your sin and your death. He saw you were in trouble, so he came. You can trust him. But he not only comes to you in times of trouble, just to come to you, he calms fears in the midst of his coming in those troubles. 49 and 50. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. You see, when he gets there, he sees the disciples' terror, and he speaks words of comfort to them, because he has comfort to give. One of my greatest stories, it's, I read it every year around Christmas time, is A Christmas Carol. And there's a line in there when Scrooge is talking to Marley, the first ghost that comes back from the grave, to warn him about the rest of the story that's going to happen. And he says, speak comfort to me, Jacob. And Marley's ghost turns to him and he says, I have none to give. He had none to give because all of his message, all of his presence was meant to inspire fear and doubt. To let him know exactly how terrible he was and the terrible fate that was about to befall him. 
But when Jesus speaks to his people who need comfort, he has comfort to give. He says, take heart. It's I. It's me. Don't be afraid. I'm here. We don't have to be afraid because of who he is. He says, take heart. It is I. He doesn't say, take heart. Ghosts aren't real, disciples. He doesn't say, take heart. The wind isn't really that bad. He says, no, no, no. Take heart because I'm here. I showed up. I'm the one who's come to you. There's no need to fear. Underdog is here. There's no need to fear. Christ is here. I came. It's not so bad to be his disciple because he is trustworthy. You don't have to be afraid. He comes to you in your trouble. And while he is also trustworthy, he goes where he's needed. That's the third reason that we see from our text this morning that it's not so bad to be a disciple of Jesus Christ because he goes where he's needed. Notice he gets into the boat with them, verses 51 and 52, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When he met his disciples on the water, he got in the boat with them because that's where he was needed. He could have calmed the wind from the mountain. He could have calmed the wind while he was standing on the water. But that wasn't close enough to his people. That wasn't in his presence as he did the miracle. So he got into the boat with them. Calming the winds from afar may have removed the reason for their fear, but it wouldn't have brought them to him in a close relational proximity to his presence. So he got in the boat with his people. He came to their level. He didn't ask them to come to him so that he might comfort them. But instead, he went to them, not just on the water, not just to the boat, but in the boat with his people, all the way there where he was needed. When he saved you, if you are saved in Christ, he didn't pronounce your salvation from the heavens. He didn't come to earth as a perfect man or a perfect being that was kind of like a man and merely pronounce it and then leave. He didn't just come to be a man who was a full-grown man. He didn't just come as a man who would come with no troubles, with no fears, to live a life full of comfort, to never experience sorrow. No, he came as a full-on man, the full-on perfect man, just like us in every way except for his sin, all the way down to a birth just like yours, just like mine, except probably more humble than yours and mine. That's how he came. He got into the boat with his people because he went where he was needed. He wanted to give his presence to them. And when he arrived, that presence that he gave to them, that's what calmed the wind. 51, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. That's when it ceased. Last time he called in the storm, he stood up and spoke and it ceased. This time, once he gets there, it's done. It's when he is with his people that he delivers them from their troubles. It's when he shows up that the miracle happens. He calms the weather for the second time in the book of Mark. So this miracle that he does here shouldn't really be surprising to them, right? 
And yet it was. 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The text is calling us back to the miracle that happened earlier that same day, because that's the most recent one. But it should have been on the disciples' mind because it happened that same day. They should have thought, you know what? Last time we were in this boat, on this water, in a similar storm, what happened? What happened last time we were in a storm? Jesus! That should have been their first thought. But they forgot. They didn't even remember the loaves from earlier that day much less the last time he calmed the storm earlier in the book of Mark. It's because they didn't understand the fullness of his person and work in the matter of the loaves, so they were shocked, they were astounded that he could possibly walk on the water to get there. And that then, once he walked on the water, when he arrived, that his presence was what was going to calm the wind. They forgot that he can provide what is needed when he goes where he is needed. But he's not just needed in the boat with his disciples. Because notice they get out of the boat eventually. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Yeah, he was willing to get into the boat with his disciples because that's where he was needed at that point and that time. But he's also willing to get out of the boat when he's needed. Because he doesn't just want the people who are already in the boat. He wants to go out and get those who are not in the boat yet. He goes out and finds them. He wants the people who aren't in the boat. His disciples moved on past their astonishment at his works, moved on from looking at what he had done in the past, calming the storm, feeding the 5,000, calming the storm again. They started looking at what he might do in the future. They got out with him. They continued to follow him to see what else he might do, where else he might go. Because he is in the healing business. He's available to the sick. Verses 54 and 55. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. He got out of the boat so that he could heal those who needed him. He continued doing what we've seen him do over and over in the book of Mark. He's come to those who are ill because those who are well have no need of a physician. He's not just healing bodies here. He's showing them that he could heal their souls. That's where he's needed. So that's where he is. He gets out of the boat to work miracles. Verse 56. Wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. See, he goes wherever he's needed. Villages, cities, countryside, doesn't matter. Nowhere is beyond his reach. He has a plan for every tribe, tongue, and nation across the entire world. He goes where he's needed, and he is needed everywhere. When he gets there, he works miracles. As many as touch even the fringe of his garment are made well. And they're made well because he makes them well. Christ is in the healing business. So he goes where he's needed. He goes to all who are bruised and burnt. With the promise that when he gets there, he will not break them. He will heal them. He'll love them. They need him, so he's there. It is not so bad to be a disciple. 
Because you get to follow Christ. And the Christ that you follow cares for his people, he is trustworthy, and he goes where he's needed. If you are his, he cares for you in the same way that he cared for his disciples. You can trust him not only with your eventual, possible, future salvation, but you can trust him right now with every care that you have, with every step that you take, with every day in your life. You can trust him today to be the kind of savior who saves you when he goes where he is needed because you desperately need him whether you recognize that or not. You're helpless apart from him. You're someone who forgets to bring enough food and yet he chooses to work through you anyway. In your hands is where he works miracles today. All he asks is that once you come to him and been healed by him, that you now respond by living a life of obedience to him, being his instrument to go out and spread his name and his glory to everyone else in the same way that you heard it. Wherever he's needed, that's where we take him. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we go there with the message that they are going to be a disciple of a God who it's not so bad to serve. Yes, there's a cost. Yes, you might be rejected just as he was. Yes, that rejection could mean even the ending of your own life. But in the end, it's not so bad because you've got him. When you need him, he's right there. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for giving us the chance to follow a God like you. We are wandering. We are like sheep without a shepherd. And yet when you see us, you have compassion on us. Yet when you see us, you care for us. You act in such a way and you are such a God that we can trust you. And you go where you're needed And God, we need you desperately. Thank you for being that for us. Thank you for showing that to us today. Help us to be people who follow you joyfully and gladly. Because it's not so bad to be in your service. Any other service, any other God we might possibly try to follow, does not care for us, is not trustworthy, and doesn't go where he's needed. But you do. So let us follow you and serve you today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.